Well, good morning, UBC. It is good to be with you this morning. Uh, who knew Warren had such a beautiful ver- uh, voice? That was just a wonderful song. Matt, Sarah, and Warren especially, thank you for leading us in that music. It really led us right to the feet of our Father, who is a good Father. And today we're going to talk a little bit about parenting, and I want to give sort of a caveat. I am a parent of three kids, but I am not a perfect parent. I am far from a perfect parent. So it's really humbling to be tasked with preaching about parenting. I think maybe there's a reason Jeremiah um, gave me this one. Um, but I, I will take this one over, over wives and husbands. I'll, I'll let Jeremiah handle, handle that one. Uh, my name's Brian Briscoe. I'm a longtime UBC member. Uh, Jeremiah asked me to fill in while he's finishing up a vacation, a much-needed time of rest and relaxation, and I'm always glad to do it when he asks me. Um, it's a little unusual to be standing here in front of, uh, you know, around 50 people. We're, we're used to seeing bigger numbers, but, but I will say for those of you watching at home, um, feel free to come to worship in person with all of the, uh, uh, the caveats in place. So, uh, you know, we, we need to be masked, we need to be socially distanced, we need to keep it to 50 people or less. But if you've been a little tentative about coming, let me tell you, being here is a special thing, and it's, it's a great thing. Um, obviously, if there's reasons for you not to be here, don't come. But if you're sort of on the fence, if you're thinking maybe I should come try it out, I promise you, you will be blessed. And there is just a different feel about being at UBC in person, even in these odd circumstances. So all that said, before I get started, I want to wave to my three kids. They didn't believe that I'd be on TV today. So Lila, Carter, Luke, I hope you're watching. Um, I told you I'd be on TV, and, and here I am. So... So let's go. We're going to be talking about Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. This is near the end of our study of Ephesians that Jeremiah has been uh, leading us through. And of course, Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 is directed towards the nuclear family. The passage specifically addresses parents with children still living at home and therefore still within the parent's authority. So if you are an expectant parent, If you're the parent of an infant, of a toddler, of an elementary school child, of a middle schooler, of a high schooler, or God forbid, one of those college students that's still hanging out at your house, these verses are for you. And similarly, if you're one of those kids or one of those young adults or one of those college students that are still living with their parents, um, there's something for you as well today. So I'm going to be reading Ephesians 6 verses 1 through 4 from the New American Standard Bible. I think it's going to be on the screen behind us, or you can follow along with your Bible um, here at home. Paul tells us, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father, father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Before I get into the meat of these verses, I want to take just a few minutes and acknowledge that this is a difficult time to be the parent of a child living at home. And it is an equally difficult time to be a child living at home with parents. The crisis we are currently facing is without doubt the most challenging our particular generation has ever faced. The cruel nature of this pandemic has disrupted our routines, 
cut us off from our extended family and friends, taken us away from our churches, and divided us politically and socially. For some, this pandemic has meant loss of a job or loss of a friend or loss of a family member. The pandemic has caused increased feelings of isolation, grief, fear, depression, and anxiety. And the reality of all of that is hitting families especially hard. And it's hitting it especially hard right now when we have to make difficult decisions about what we're even gonna do with our kids for the school year. Instead of joyfully anticipating our kids' first day at school, we're left wondering what the right choice is about that first day and who we can trust to help us make that decision. And at the same time, we as parents are trying to protect our children from feeling our own anxiety about these and other issues related to this disease. It's just a difficult time for, for the little families right now. And for that reason, before I get into what the Bible tells us about what, how families should live, I wanted to take just a brief moment and acknowledge all of the families in our church. Our family's ritual since March has been for the kids together on me and Sarah's bed every Sunday morning to watch the Sunday service. And Jeremiah and Matt and all of the rest of the UBC team have done an amazing job faithfully giving us Sunday church during these difficult circumstances. And we thank you for that. I'm sure there are families right now watching at home um, on their bed, on the living room couch, on their patio, at their breakfast table, wherever you are right now, I want us to take some time and just acknowledge you for what you and your family have done for this five, past five months since March. Parents, you have been your kids. Teachers, counselors, spiritual advisors, nurses, friends, short order cooks, playmates, and countless other roles for the last five months. Some of these roles were completely new to you and unexpectedly thrust on you, and yet you have learned to adapt, risen to the occasion, and filled them with grace and love. It has not been easy, and it has obviously not always gone perfectly, but you have met the challenge of this pandemic head-on, protecting your kiddos, nurturing your kids, helping your kids, loving your kids, and you have done it well. And of course, we as Christian parents know that we have not done these things through our own power, or through our own wisdom, but through the power of Jesus Christ and with the wisdom of God's Holy Spirit. And children, if you are listening, you have lost a lot, maybe the most as a result of this pandemic. You've lost school, you've lost time with friends, you've lost time with family, you've lost summer vacations, you've lost camp, you've lost sports. For some of you, you lost your only chance at graduation. For some of you, you lost your only chance at prom. It is really, really unfair what you have lost because of this horrible disease. But, like your parents, you have all risen to this unique challenge. You have proven to be flexible, adjustable, adaptable. You have taught your parents how to log on to Zoom. <laughs> you have become better friends to your siblings, and you have helped out with, with chores, and you have learned new skills which have helped out your household. You have accepted, usually graciously, not always, but usually, all of the canceled events and changes this pandemic has caused. And most importantly, at least in my house, Luke, Lila, and Carter, you have loved me and Sarah when we needed extra love. And you all have done the same for your parents. You have honored your parents and your God through your sacrifices and your faithfulness during this difficult time. So wherever you are right now, 
parents and children, all the little families that are part of this community of faith, I want you to take just a few minutes and give each other hugs. So Luke, Lila, Carter, give mom a hug right now. Tell your kids, parents, thanks for helping us get this far. And thanks for helping us get through this thing. And kids, tell your parents the same thing. And give each other high fives or pats on the back because you have done amazing things these last five months. And this has been difficult. And you have done those things through the love of the Father, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the spirit of sacrifice modeled most perfectly by Jesus Christ, the Son. And know, families, that this church, that UBC and its members are praying for you and cheering you on during this time. UBC is here for you. One of our core principles is that families are a priority for this church, and we give thanks to God for all of the families at UBC. So that's my acknowledgement. Before I started, I just wanted you guys to know that we are in this together and we are doing this together, that it is tough, it is difficult, but that through God's power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, we are, we are making this, we are doing this thing. So I want to talk a little bit about what Paul tells us about, about how our family should be governed. He provides a set of rules or a code to govern parent-child relationships. And these rules, they apply all the time, but they seem especially appropriate to discuss during this time when we're so, spending so much time with our families. Letting these rules govern our households will bring our families closer together and more in accord with God's plan for our families. So there are two basic rules provided for the children to obey and to honor their parents, and two basic rules provided for the parents to not provoke the children to anger and to raise the children in the way of the Lord. And those rules, of course, are symbiotic. In other words, for the Christian family to function to its fullest, both parties, the child and the parent, must meet their obligations. This gets back to Paul's idea of unity and self-sacrifice that Jeremiah has talked about. However, we must not approach these rules with the spirit of judgment or legalism. Instead, we must strive to live within our Christian families in a spirit of grace and mercy, which gets back to Paul's ideas about love. So let's look at those four obligations, and let's start with the obligations placed on children. So children, listen up. I'll get to the parents later. I promise it'll be rough for them too. The first obligation that a, parent ha that a child has to his parent or her parent is to obey his or her parents. Paul says in Ephesians 6.1, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. The word obey here is a stronger word than the word submit Paul uses to describe the relationship between husbands and wives. Submit is not a strong enough word to describe the compliance that is required of children to their parents. Obey in this context means exactly what it sounds like, to do what your parents say without question or at least with very little questioning. The parallel passage in Colossians 3.20 adds that this obedience should be in all things, not just in the things you want to do or the things that seems fun to do, but in all things. Children must obey their parents all the time and in all things. It's a very straightforward obligation. So why should we do this? Why should we obey our parents? Well, Paul gives two reasons in this verse. He says, first, Paul says to obey your children, quote, in the Lord. 
And the phrase, in the Lord, in this context, means that obedience to your parents reflect in some way the child's relationship to Jesus. In other words, as Jesus was obedient to his father, so a child should be obedient to his or her parents. This is a basic and simple way for a child to model Jesus' life. So parents, if you are teaching your kids to follow Christ, one way they can express that is by being obedient to you. The second reason why a child should obey his or her parents is because doing so is, quote, right. Here, right means what Jesus expects of his followers. Colossians 3.20, again, puts it this way, children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Therefore, a child should obey his or her parents because it is one of the first ways that a child can live their lives like Jesus, subject to their parents' authority, and because such obedience is expected of and pleases our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are good reasons to do what the Bible says to do. And kids, I hate to say it, um, there's really no way around these verses. The type of obedience required of the kids here is near total. So if parents ask you to clean your room, you need to do it, even when you don't want to, because submitting to your parents' authority models Jesus' submission to his father's authority, and because it pleases Jesus, and we should always want to please Jesus as his followers. Parents ask you to do homework, same thing. Basically, if your parents ask you to do something, this verse says you should do it. It's as simple as that. This is the obedience of Isaac to Abraham when Abraham asked Isaac to walk up the mountain for his own sacrifice. This is the obedience of Jesus when God told him there was no other way than the cross. Those are our examples of obedience to our parents. However, we, we should pause because this type of obedience raises all sorts of questions, and I obviously can't address all of them here. But, as was alluded to by Mr. Kevin, should a child obey his or, his or her parents if the parents ask the child to do something that is either impossible or contrary to God's law? I think it is fair to say that the rule doesn't go that far. Our ultimate authority is God, and if we are asked to do something that God would not approve of, we should not do it. In this situation, children, we should rely on the Holy Spirit's guidance and seek out the wisdom of other Christians in our lives. If our parents ask us to do something that is not within God's will or that we feel is not within God's will. Similarly, what if my parents are not Christians? Do I have to obey my non-Christian parents? Christian children, I believe, should obey their non-Christian parents as long as their non-Christian parents are not asking them to do something outside of God's law. I think that obedience reflects God's love for the non-Christian parents and serves as a testament to the children's faithfulness to God, which then becomes a witness to the non-Christian parents. And then finally, and again, this is non-exhaustive, you could think of a hundred situations, but what do we do when the parent is abusive? Does this rule require complete obedience to such a parent as long as the parent is not asking the child to violate God's law? Again, I think it is fair to say that this rule doesn't go that far. A child's obligation to obey his or her parents surely does not extend to scenarios that put their mental or physical health in danger. A child in an abusive situation has every right to seek outside help and protect themselves from that abuse. So with some limited exceptions, and there are others, the first obligation for children is to obey your parents, to do what they ask you to do. The second obligation on the child, according to Paul, is to honor 
the parents. Paul says, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. Here, Paul, of course, is referring to the fifth of the Ten Commandments, going way back. In some ways, this obligation is a repeat of the first. You honor your mother and father when you obey them. But I think one way to think of the difference between obeying your parents and honoring your parents is to think of the difference between actions and attitudes. Obedience is an action, but I can choose to do that action to obey my parents with a wide uh, array of attitudes. I can begrudge my parents for asking me to do something. I can do something out of fear of the consequences. I can do something while resenting my parents and so on and so forth. Doing those things even with a negative attitude, is strictly obedience and fulfills the the child's first obligation. However, obeying my parents while having a negative or poor attitude does not honor my parents and therefore fails to meet my second obligation. Honoring my parents then means obeying them with a good attitude. I think it's similar to Paul's instructions about giving in 2 Corinthians. There Paul says that People who give to the church should not give reluctantly or out of compulsion, but out of the goodness of their own heart. God, Paul says, loves the cheerful giver. The action is giving. The attitude is cheerfulness. Here God expects obedience to one parents, but he especially loves obedience when it is done with the right attitude, out of a desire to honor one's parents. Like tithing, obedience to one's parents is a spiritual discipline. At times, we may not want to do it, but when obedience is consistently and regularly chosen, it leads to a transformation of our heart and mind, where ultimately obedience is the first instinct and desire. At that point, we are honoring our parents with our obedience. This obligation to honor one's parents extends beyond children living at home with their parents to all children of parents, for example, adult parents, uh, adult children. Whereas an adult child is no longer expected to be blindly obedient to his or her parents, an adult child is expected to honor his or her parents throughout their lifetime and even beyond their life. And for an adult child to honor his or her parents, the child must show respect for and take care of the parents in their old age. And note that Paul doesn't say we only honor our parents when they are worthy of our honor. Paul says we honor our parents. Paul gives two motivations for honoring our parents. He says that when we honor our parents, we will have prosperity and a long life. Now, you and I know that is not literally true, or at least not always literally true. We all know of good and faithful children who loved and honored their parents but but never had prosperity and did not have a long life. And we know people who have completely failed to honor their parents but who do have prosperity and have good health. I think what Paul is simply saying, again, Mr. Kevin nailed it, is that you will have a better life. You will have a more complete life. You will have a more fulfilling life if you honor your parents. Things will go good for you and your family if you make that decision to honor your parents. Now, enough with the kids. Let's turn to the obligations placed on parents. These are tougher for those of us who have young kids. Note that Paul in verse 4 uses the word father. At the time of Paul, it would have been the father's obligation to educate and discipline the children. And I think that is why Paul restricts this teaching to fathers. But I believe it's fair, and I don't think it's misusing Scripture in our modern context to read these obligations as extending to both mom and dad. 
So moms, I think you're on the hook for these teachings as well. The first obligation placed on the parents is to not provoke their children to anger. And this is a hard one, I really think, especially for dads. This is the most countercultural obligation in the code related to the parent-child relationship. A Greco-Roman or a Jewish audience would not have heard much new in the obligations of obedience and honor. Children in those societies would have been expected to obey their parents, and any rebellion would have been met with harsh punishment from dad. In those societies, it was the child's duty to not provoke the father to anger. But Paul turns that duty on its head. Now the parents must refrain from provoking their children into anger. In their interactions with their children, parents must be sensitive and deliberate. They must take care and be gentle with their children so as not to cause the child undue resentment, anger, or pain. One commentator I read says that this obligation um, effectively rules out reactionary flare-ups, overly harsh words, insults, sarcasm, nagging, demeaning comments, inappropriate teasing, unreasonable demands, and anything else that can be perceived as provocative. I know for some dads out there, that, that hits pretty close to home. That sounds like just any, any day in our household sometime with teenagers and, and younger kids. It's so easy, I think, again, especially for our dads, but also for moms, to provoke our children, even sometimes with the most well-meaning intentions. Such provocations can have disastrous consequences for the well-being of the child that can continue into adulthood. And such provocations make it much harder for the child to fulfill his or her obligations to obey and honor their parents. I'm much less likely to obey and honor my dad if he is always yelling at me or teasing me or being unreasonably harsh to me. And I'm much more likely to obey and honor my dad if he is gentle, encouraging, and slow to anger. And this, of course, goes back to that two-way nature of these obligations. They work best when both parties meet them. And as the more mature party, or at least we're supposed to be the more mature party, the parents have to set the tone in the relationship. I believe that God has given the primary role of protecting our children's hearts to the parents. Teachers, ministers, friends all play a role in that, but the primary role is reserved for mom and dad. And this obligation to not provoke anger serves as one of the main ways to protect those little hearts. If we are too hard on our kids, if we go too far in our teasing, if we are too harsh with our discipline, our kids' hearts can harden, they can become discouraged, and they grow up confused about who they can trust. Colossians 3.21, the parallel passage to this, Paul says, fathers do not exasperate your children that they may not lose heart. These little damaged hearts can severely hinder a child's relationship, not just with their parents, but with other family members, with their friends, people in authority, and most importantly, the child's relationship with the Lord. For that reason, parents need to take great care in the way they raise their children so that the child's hearts are protected and also prepared so that the child is willing and ready to accept and follow Jesus as Lord, which should be the primary desire of every parent for their child. As I was preparing the sermon this week, the Lord put an opportunity in my life to see how this obligation works. My youngest son, Carter, really wanted to learn how to rollerblade. So my wife and I pitched in some money to his normal allowance to help him buy a set of rollerblades and pads. 
The rollerblades were due to arrive Friday morning, and Carter went to bed Thursday night, looking forward to waking up and skating like the next Mike Madano. The rollerblades came, Carter put them on, and then quickly learned that you can't just put rollerblades on and be a great skater. This provoked our son to great anger. He cried, he moaned, he told us to throw the rollerblades away. He asked for his money back. He basically threw a pretty big fit. I would show you a picture of the scene, which we did as good parents, took pictures of the scene, <laughs> but I'm afraid release, releasing that here in this setting would, would maybe scar him for life. I was working inside and I heard the commotion and came outside to see what was going on. I found him rolling around in the backyard, acting like the world was coming to an end. I suppressed every instinct to yell at him, to tell him to suck it up, or to take up his offer to throw those rollerblades in the trash. Doing any of those things would have provoked him more than he was already provoked and would have frustrated him. Instead, I have a picture of what happened. Instead, I picked up my water hose, because we have new sod in the yard and I'm watering all the time, and just started watering it. And when I got to him, I just kept going, and I watered him like he was part of the grass. And because of that, he couldn't help but laugh. And he forgot about his anger and frustration, at least for a moment. And then we went inside, and I told him that when I was a kid, I got rollerblades, and it took me a long time to learn how to do it myself. And by that evening, Carter, instead of totally giving up, was back on his rollerblades, ready to go. This is obviously a simple example, but if I had further provoked him, if I had told him he was never going to learn how to do it, or yelled at him, or punished him, or gave him consequences, he would have given up and, and never tried to rollerblade again. But by helping him calm down and encouraging him, he was able to refocus and give it another try. My guess is he'll be zipping up and down our alley for many years to come. Remember, parents, when these situations arise, and they frustratingly arise all the time, it is the parent's obligation, not the child's, to not provoke anger and to calm these situations down. The second obligation placed on the parents is to teach their children the way of the Lord through instruction and discipline, and this is our most important um, obligation as a parent. Instruction refers to the education of the child. Discipline or admonition is a narrower word than instruction. It refers to counsel, exhortations, warnings, rebukes. The subject matter of the education is always the way of the Lord. In other words, Paul says the primary place of education about who Jesus is and what it means to be his follower is the household. Not school, not church, not anywhere else. Ideally, the first place a child should learn about Jesus is in their home from their parents. In Deuteronomy, Moses stands before the Israelites before they finally enter the promised land. One of his instructions is that the parents of the Israelites must recite God's law to your children and talk about them when you are at home and when you are away, when you lie down and when you rise. In other words, all the time be talking about Jesus and who he is and what he has done for you. This is an ongoing obligation on the parents Parents must deliberately and intentionally introduce their children to Jesus and teach them how to follow him. This goes way beyond taking your kids to church on Sundays. If that's all you're doing, you're not doing it enough. It envisions the teaching of Jesus being a part of daily life in the household. 
This includes regular conversations about faith, family prayer, family Bible study, and the parents modeling through words and deeds a life lived as a follower of Christ. It includes gentle and kind discipline with the constant goal of redirecting the child toward the way of Jesus Christ. It is obviously a big task, but it's our most important one and it is one worth undertaking. This obligation, of course, relates to all the others we've discussed. If parents talk about Jesus but do not model him to their children, they will grow up confused about who Jesus is. If parents say that Jesus is love but do not exhibit that love, children will grow up confused about who Jesus is. If parents say that Jesus was sacrificial, compassionate, gentle, and kind but do not exhibit those traits, children will have a warped view of Jesus and may not even choose to follow him. If a child sees that the parents value prosperity, success, career, or stability more than a life led following Jesus, the child will grow up valuing the same things. If a child sees that their parents do not really follow the teachings of Jesus, but only give him lip service or only talk about him at church or to certain people, a child will model the same behavior in their life. And such a child will likely not obey or honor their parents, at least in the ways required by Jesus. Teach your kids about Jesus. Model his life in your household. Make decisions based on him being Lord of your life and Lord of your household. This is what it means to teach your children the way of the Lord. So those are the obligations on a Christian family, according to Paul. The children must obey and honor their parents, and the parents must not provoke their children to anger and must teach their children the way of the Lord. Families who strive to follow these rules will live a life that is closer to God's will for their family. Now, before I close, I want to acknowledge that there is no family that perfectly meets their respective obligations under Ephesians 6. I, for instance, stand before you as a father of three who violates my parental obligations on a near daily basis, or maybe daily, depending on which kid you talk to. I can go too far with my teasing. I can be too hard with my discipline. I can be too reactive. I have to work hard to take a breath and calm down before addressing my children when they are disobedient, and I often fail at that and respond too quickly out of anger. Sometimes even when my kids aren't disobedient, I tease them or are sarcastic with them, and it goes too far. I don't do enough to ensure that my kids love God's word and are engaged in daily prayer. My list goes on and on, and I am sure each and every parent out there listening, their list does as well. And this doesn't even begin to address the deep brokenness that is out there in the world, whether it be divorce, addiction, infidelity, anger, you name it. It is difficult, if not impossible, for families under such stress to come close to that ideal family described by Paul. But the good news is that no matter what family situation you find yourself in, Jesus is Lord of all. For those Christian families striving to live out a life based on Ephesians 6, Jesus is there to encourage, support, and model the perfect life. When we miss the mark as a family, the Bible says Jesus advocates for us before God the Father, and that he ultimately stood in our place on the cross so that our sins and shortcomings are forgiven. We know that he is just, but also gracious and merciful, and that his defining characteristic is love. We know that once we place ourselves in Jesus' hands, we are there forever. In short, we know that we can trust Jesus as Lord of our families and that as long as we strive to be more like him, 
our lives and the lives of our families will be of eternal significance, a lasting testament to who God is and what he has done for us. And for those parents who are struggling with a rebellious or disobedient child, Jesus has given us the parable of the prodigal son as an example of how to handle that situation. Recall that in that story, the father never gives up on the son. He is always praying and hoping for his return, and when he finally returns, the father throws the son a huge party and treats him better than if he had ever left. This should be the attitude of the parent who has a rebellious child, prayerful, expectant, compassionate, gentle, ready to welcome the child back with open arms at any time. And the reason for this is because Jesus never gave up on any of us. No matter how terrible our sin is, Jesus was willing to sacrifice his own life so that we might one day spend eternity with him in heaven. If Jesus does that for us, we must do that for our own children. And perhaps the most difficult situation is where the parent is not a Christian or is not living a Christ-like life and the child has decided to faithfully follow Jesus. That is a lot for a child to overcome. The hope for such a child in that situation is that our salvation is not based on our family. It's not based on how good our family relationships are. It's not based on how closely our family follows the Bible. It is based on our relationship with Jesus Christ who brings us into perfect relationship with God the Father. And so if that is you, cling to Jesus. And we promise as a church that we will help you in that situation. We will teach you what it means to be a follower of Christ so that you can be a testament for your non-Christian family. Regardless of which situation you find yourself in, the good news of Jesus Christ is that he loves you. He died and he rose from the grave for you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. All that means is you make a simple decision to follow him, to put your life in his hands to model your life after his and to let his life and teachings change who you are. If you have never made that decision, and if you are interested in learning more about what it means to follow Jesus, this is a good place to be in. I know that Matt's going to be waiting for you outside. He's going to give you a little more information about that in a moment. But if you need to talk to someone about what it means to follow Jesus, uh, Matt would love to do that with you today. If you're at home and you're listening and you're wondering what it means to be a Christian, how can that change my family? I want more about what you're talking about. This church is ready to hear from you. You can email, you can call, you can reach out to the staff members of this church and they will talk to you about why making a decision to follow Jesus is the best decision you can make for yourself and for your family. So those are our obligations, church. And as families, we need to strive to meet them. The more we meet them, the better our families will be the better our church will be, and the better our world will be. And we are that shining light that can make a difference in this world. Let us pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for teaching us what it means for our families to live according to your will. We pray that you teach us as children to be obedient to our parents so we can learn how to be obedient to you, our Savior. We pray that you teach us as children to honor our parents so that we can honor you and your Father God. We also pray that as parents, you give us the patience and discernment to not provoke our children to anger and the courage and wisdom to teach our children to follow you wholeheartedly and the courage and wisdom for us to follow you 
wholeheartedly. We thank you, Jesus, for how you love us, and we thank you most of all for standing in our place on that terrible cross so that we can have the opportunity to spend eternity in heaven with you. And it is in your most holy name that we pray. Amen.